Welcome to the Stuttering Mind podcast. I'm Rama Siva, author and speech coach, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on stuttering and stammering. You can find the episode show notes, your free seven-step guide to expressing yourself and lots more information at stutteringmind.com. Let's get started. This is episode number 38. In today's episode, we have Paul Brockers from England, who now lives in France, lucky him. He just published a book entitled The Perfect Stutter. I'm honored to have Paul on such a mind. Welcome, Paul. Thank you for inviting me. It's good to be here. Great to have you on the podcast talking about his stuttering. So did you always think stuttering was perfect? No, um, quite the opposite. Um, it seemed to me right from as far back as I can ever remember that uh, it, it was a defect, or at least that's how I perceived it, right from my childhood onwards. Um, and for many, many years, uh, my priority was, was to try and rid myself of what I perceived as a defect. So the perception of it being perfect came about relatively recently. And how recently was that? And how did it come to your mind as the stutter being perfect? Okay. <laughs> well, um, it's a bit of a long story, this, but it, it started when I started to, I started to perceive that it could potentially be perfect when I became interested in meditation uh, and I, I started practicing meditation and, um, and getting to know something of the philosophy behind the meditation, uh, in, in particular Zen. Um, and to cut a very long story short, there's an underlying understanding uh, in Zen that on the deepest level of all, everything that we experience is exactly as it should be. And it always was as it should be, and it always will be as it should be. And in that respect, everything is perfect. And that, that means everything. Um, so when I came across this philosophy, I, it, it occurred to me, well, if, if that's the case, then it implies that my stutter must be perfect as well. It, it must be exactly as it's meant to be. And, um, and therefore, it, it's not really a defect, even though that was how it appeared to me up until that time. And um, so I studied more and I meditated more. And, and for many years, I, I, I would say then there was a, a sort of difference between my intellectual understanding. So intellectually, I could sort of perceive that, well, or I could understand that, it, yes, it must be perfect because everything's perfect, but it didn't feel perfect, not at all. Um, and it, it was a gradual thing over the years uh, as, as I continued to meditate and as a part of the meditation, as I continued to observe the stutter, uh, just watching myself 
watching from inside, watching myself stutter, watching the feelings that come with it and the thoughts that come with it and observing it in this way, um, I did indeed gradually start to get the feeling that yes, there is something about this that, that is as it's meant to be. And then that feeling has gradually grown. And now, um, I wouldn't say I feel that it's perfect all of the time, <laughs> uh, but, but that feeling or that awareness comes and goes. And it, it's been quite a change uh, to how I used to perceive it when I was young. Fabulous. So when did you start to meditate? Um, about when I was 21 years old, maybe, maybe just slightly before my 21st birthday. Um, and it's happened, or I, I started experimenting with it, first of all, when I was 20, because somebody um, gave me a book to read. And the book was called Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, um, which I took with me. I, I was actually leaving the country at the time. I, I was going to live in Germany, and I, I took this book with me. Um, and it, it was a time where I was going through a lot of difficulty in my life. I just dropped out of university and everything had uh, gone somewhat wrong. And, and my dad was not too happy with the fact, well, he was not at all happy with the fact that I dropped out of university and hence my decision to go to Germany. And it, it was a friend of mine who gave me this book. He said, well, he thought if I read it, it might be useful to me. Uh, so it, it took a few months before I actually got round to reading it uh, for several reasons. One reason was I, I had no real interest in, in motorbikes or in motorcycle maintenance, so I couldn't really see how it could be of much relevance to me. And at the time, I knew nothing whatsoever about Zen. Um, but I, I started reading this book, and it, it sort of gradually dawned on me. Uh, the book is a strange book. It, it doesn't tell you much explicitly about Zen. Um, it, it tells you more about the guy who wrote the book. It, it was really a sort of biography. But I, I started to realize that this guy who wrote the book, that I have some things in common with him. Uh, and a lot of the things that he was saying in it seemed to make sense to me. Uh, so then, having got to the end of the book, uh, I then started reading more books about Zen uh, that explained in a more direct way what it was about. And, and then when I was 21, um, I went and visited a Zen center um, and became a regular visitor. Uh, and it, it was there where I learned to actually do the meditation and, and I got into the way of life. Um, and I, I've been at it on and off uh, ever since then. Um, and just to put that into perspective, I, that must have been um, 1978, I think, or 1979. So it was quite a long time ago. Okay, so how old are you now, Paul? 62 now. You look good. I must be the French weather is... Uh, <laughs> keeping me in the state uh, and the exercise. I do lots of exercise here. 
Fabulous. And why did you drop out of university? Well, two things. Um, perhaps I should explain. Started off, I, I was studying medicine at Southampton University. And um, I was 18 when I started. I just hadn't had my 18th birthday. I just, just left school. And my speech, my stutter was completely out of control. Um, it, 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 I had a severe stutter back then. So uh, to the point where I used to block before any sound came out at all. Um, and it, it was completely, well, not completely unpredictable, but it, it was quite unpredictable. Uh, so some of the time I could say some things, but it was pretty much impossible to hold a regular conversation. I could ask for things, but even that sometimes was difficult. And sometimes even just saying yes or no was really difficult and took ages. Um, and I, I was lucky to get into university. I, I applied for five universities and four of them gave, gave me interviews and one of them didn't. And so I attended all four of the interviews and all of them pointed out that with a stutter as severe as mine, that the, the idea of doing medicine was not really sensible. Um, and, and they suggested I could do something else like medical biochemistry or something like that. But, but I, I wanted to do medicine. Um, and anyway, those four universities turned me down. And the fifth university didn't even give me an interview. Uh, so I presumed that they weren't going to offer me a place. And then quite out of the blue, after I'd been turned down by all these other four universities and, and expecting that I would be turned down by, by this fifth one, they offered me a place without an interview. Uh, so I got in. <laughs> Um, which was great, or I thought it was great. Uh, but then little by little, I started realizing that the warnings that they'd given me at these other universities about having a severe stutter uh, had some substance to them. And, and then when I was at Southampton University, um, all, all of a sudden, it was as though my stutter became more severe than it had been before. And I became much more anxious and I, I started to have real difficulties with anxiety. Uh, so, so there was this combination of quite some severe stuttering and social anxiety. And I started struggling. Um, and, and then in the end, um, well, was a bit of a tortuous thing. First of all, they offered that I could have some time off in order to get therapy, uh, which I took. And, and they told me that, that I could come back if, if my stutter improved, if my fluency improved. And so then I did go and get some, some therapy. Um, and my stuttering did improve. And I went back to university the following year and then when I went back, it got worse again, almost straight away. And all of the same problems just reappeared. And, and the improvement that I'd had a few months earlier just completely disappeared. 
and, and then I got very depressed um, and, and I started not turning up to things. I, I started, I, I felt like an imposter. I felt like I shouldn't be there, that I'd sort of got in when I shouldn't have got in uh, because I didn't have an interview. Um, and it all became too, too much to me. And uh, in the end, I, I just gave up and went off to live in Germany. So, so that, that was a somewhat unsuccessful first attempt at university there. Um, and so it was sometime after that, that this guy gave me this book about Zen, I started doing meditation and then things started to change. Um, a bit too late for the university, I'm afraid, uh, but, but then eventually um, things turned out okay, although it took a while. Thanks for sharing that. And so at the age of 21, you went to Germany and you were starting to read the books. And what common things did the author speak about in the book about motorcycles and Zen that resonated with you as a person who stuttered? Um, well, he, he was talking about, um, this is going back a long way, but he spoke about the fact that human beings have the capacity to perceive things in different ways. Uh, that, that it's like we have a sort of everyday consciousness uh, which, which is suitable for certain things. And, and then there are alternative forms of consciousness that, that we sometimes get into spontaneously, but, but can also be brought about through meditation. Um, and one of the things he pointed out was, was that um, it's, it's a bit like we have this capacity to vary our focus of attention. So um, normally we sort of have a sort of average focus where we're aware of the things that are just around us and, and sort of pretty much aware of the present. But, but we can focus very intensely on just one little tiny thing. Uh, or otherwise we can also, also defocus and, in, and just sort of have a general broad background awareness of everything. Um, and the book pointed out that really in order to be able to be su successful in life, we, it's useful to have the capacity to vary one's focus of attention um, according to the circumstances that one finds oneself in. And, and that sort of resonated with me because one thing that I was aware of was when I was in a situation where, where, where I had to speak, my focus of attention went entirely onto my stutter and onto my thoughts, my anxieties about stuttering and my anticipations of what words I would get stuck on and, and the feelings of tension and all of the stuff that I felt was wrong. And I, I just couldn't pull my attention away from all of that. It sort of was like a magnet that was too strong. And when my attention went like that and became so focused like that, it, it invariably ended up with me just getting hopelessly stuck. Um, 
and stuttering. And so it sort of occurred to me around that time that, well, if, if Zen and if meditation can teach us to, to gain a bit more control over our attention, perhaps it could teach me uh, not to fall into this trap where my attention just gets sucked into this tunnel, uh, which, which ends up in uncontrollable stuttering. And so, so I, I saw that there was a potential thing there that could help me. And um, that, that, that was one of the big motivating factors. Um, one of the other things that, that was really good about Zen was that um, in Zen, they really don't give a lot of importance to speech. So um, it's, it's, it's far more important to be present and to have presence and presence of mind. And, and in Zen, it's very often you, you, you hear it said that, that our speech and, and the things we talk about just lead us astray and cause problems for us. And in many ways, um, that was quite refreshing to me because I started thinking, well, Here's something that maybe I could do quite well. If, if, if you don't have to be a good speaker in order to meditate well, um, well, then my speech is not going to be a problem to me in this. And, and in fact, as time went on, that, that turned out to be completely true, that um, whether you stutter or not, it makes no difference to your ability to learn to meditate. Fabulous. So how do you meditate? Could you share your meditation practice that you do? And do you do this in the mornings and evenings or all day? Um, well, it, it's varied over the years, of course. Um, but at, at the moment, it, it's pretty much similar to how it was when I first started. So, so I have a, a morning meditation and an evening meditation. I don't do half as much as I used to. Um, and, and since the COVID has started, uh, I've been involved with a small group who do it online, um, uh, which is a bit weird because, but it actually works really well. So um, each morning I, I get in front of the computer, uh, we do it on Skype um, and the other people join in. Uh, and so I can see the other people who are meditating on the screen in front of me, and they can see me amongst the whatever other people are there. Uh, I keep my eyes open most of the time, and not all of the time, because they tend to sort of close sometimes, especially if I'm tired. Um, and the technique that I use at the, at the moment is simply um, paying attention to the physical sensations of the breath entering my body and my breath going back out. So basically breathing in and breathing out. Um, and invariably what happens when one tries to focus on those feelings is that one's mind just wanders somewhere else. And before you know it, you're, you're thinking about what you're gonna have for breakfast or you're starting to wonder how much longer you have to sit there and, and all sorts of thoughts come. And, and so 
and this is the important thing with meditation is that when you recognize, when you notice that your mind has wandered away, you pull it back. You pull it back to whatever it is that, that you're supposed to be focusing on or that you're trying to focus on, which in my case is my breathing. So it, it becomes an exercise of one's mind wandering away, as it always does, and then purposefully putting it back to whatever it is that one's trying to pay attention to. One just does that over and over and over and over again, thousands of times, tens of thousands of times. Uh, and, and little by little, over the years, the tendency of the mind to wander becomes less. And one gradually starts to find that um, you can decide that you're going to pay attention to something, whether it be your breathing, or it might be your speech, or it might be what doing the washing up or driving the car or whatever, your attention stays where you want it to. And that's really one, one of the important things about meditation is, is this practice of training your attention to st stick where you want it to stick. And so, so that's what I'm doing at the moment and, and what I did when I first started. Uh, but, but I've had some other practices over the years too, um, which I also write, have written about in, in the book. Um, and there's a different sort of practice. It's not so much Zen, but it, it, it's a different sort of meditation, uh, which involves a sort of creative visualization. Um, and and the, the form that I personally used was uh, continuously reminding myself um, that, that I'm okay. Um, I can do that with different words. So the, the organization that I was with, uh, they, they used to have this saying, I am a peaceful soul. Um, and, and the idea behind that is, again, that just as I am now, I'm perfect. I'm exactly as I meant to be. There's nothing wrong with me. And, and, and I always was perfect and I always will be perfect. And so are you, and, and so is everybody else. We're, we're exactly as we're meant to be. And, and so that other form of meditation was repeatedly reminding myself of, of that fact. Uh, sort of like, despite all of the feelings of inadequacy and imperfection and of things being wrong with myself, with my life, just keep reminding myself I'm okay. I'm a peaceful soul. I always have been and I always will be. Um, and, and so the, I had these two sorts of meditation, uh, one from the Zen and, and, and the other from the other meditation that I learned. And throughout the decades, they're, they're the two sorts. I, I've sort of been alternating between the two. And I think both of them are really useful and, and potentially also really useful for people who stutter. Fantastic, thank you. And as a 21-year-old in Germany, in a new country, how were you able to observe your stutter and your feelings while practicing or starting to practice meditation? Could you share a bit? 
Yeah. Um, so obviously when you're sitting silently um, in a meditation posture, paying attention to your breath, you're obviously not at that moment of time able to observe your stutter. Uh, so, so there are two in, in Zen and in Buddhism generally. So there's the formal sitting practice, which is the sort of thing that I just described, where, where, you, where you sit down expressly with the intention of just paying attention to something. There's a different sort of meditation that's equally, in, in fact, maybe even more important is what, what they call meditation in action. Uh, in Hindi, sometimes it's called karma yoga. Um, and what that involves simply is single-mindedly paying attention to the task that is in, in front of you at this moment of time. Uh, so, for example, if I'm washing the dishes, I, I pay full attention to the movements and the feelings and the experience of washing the dishes. Uh, if I'm driving my car, I, I can do a driving meditation where I'm simply paying attention to what I have to pay attention to uh, while I'm driving to the road and, and to the control of the car. And every time my attention wanders away, I, I put it back, uh, whether it's driving, washing dishes, or indeed whether it's speaking. So when one's speaking, one, one can simply pay attention to one's speech. Um, and also one can pay attention to different aspects of one's speech. Uh, so you may, I mean, for example, when you're trying to learn a foreign language, um, you, you may be paying a lot of attention to pronouncing the words in the way they're meant to be pronounced. You may decide that you need to pay attention to the person you're talking to, to see what sort of feedback you're getting from that person. All of these can become forms of meditation. And um, you can pay attention to all sorts of things. One of the things I gradually learned over the years is, is that when speaking to people, um, paying attention to some things made my speech worse. Whereas paying attention to other aspects of my speech made it more fluent, made, made the stutter less. And that, that was really interesting to me because I, I started to realize, and this took quite a few years before this realization started to appear, that, that actually um, throughout my life, I, I, I've been paying attention to the wrong things <laughs> when I've been speaking. Um, and it, one day it dawned on me that, well, if I can just pay attention to something that helps me to remain fluent while I speak, then the stutter will become less. And, and so that's exactly what I did. Um, I, I started to realize that the greatest mistake that I was making as a person who stuttered who stutters was I, I was trying to speak perfectly. I, I was trying to eliminate all hesitations and all errors. But of course, I was trying not to stutter as well, but it, it was more than that. I, I was trying to sound perfectly relaxed, 
perfectly in control. I, I was trying to um, say exactly the right words and, and all of this, all sorts of focus of attention on getting everything completely right. What I wasn't focusing on was maintaining the forward flow of my speech. And um, one experience that was really useful to me, when I was a child, my, my dad made me become a choir boy and, and he used to have to go to church every Sunday. Well, he used to have to go several days a week, actually got to in practice all the time. And I could sing fine. I, I'd been, no, I, I could hardly even, I could hardly say yes or no. It was really difficult, but I could sing without any difficulty. I could sing solo in front of a church full of people and not get stuck. Um, and and it, it, it always amazed me how, how that could be possible. And yet, as soon as I start to speak, the whole thing would fall apart. And, and not only did I sing, but I also had to play in the school orchestra. Um, and I, I played the chime bars uh, back in those days. Uh, I was really lazy because I never learned the stuff I was meant to learn properly. But, um, but what I realized in an orchestra or singing, it, it's much the same thing is that if you make a mistake, you can't stop and go back and have another try because everybody else around you who is playing in the orchestra or singing with you, they, they just carry on. And so if you make a mistake, you, you, you've just got to forget about that mistake and accept it and just carry on too. Um, and then I started realizing that, okay, so maybe, how about if I start doing this in ordinary speech in my organization? Uh, so not just when I'm singing, because I, I was always doing that when I sang, because when you sing it, you have to. Yeah? Uh, but when you speak, you know, you make a mistake, you think, oh, well, I can always go back and have another try. And I made this decision one day that I'm, I'm not going to go back anymore. If, if, if I make a mistake, if something doesn't come out right, I'll just ignore that mistake and and I'll carry on with the next word or, or whatever and that changed things that 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 reading for me was a big big breakthrough um I mean I've said all of this as if like that all followed very smoothly from starting to do meditation but it took quite a few years yeah it, it was not something that it was not an awareness that dawned on me straight away by any means. And how many so, yeah. years? <laughs> how many years? Okay, so I was 21. No, I was probably 22, I think, when, when my speech really started to improve. Um, and this happened alongside the meditation, not straight away. I, I'd been meditating for a good year or more before the improvement started. But uh, And then I went through several years where I was basically in remission. I thought the stutter had gone away. Um, and, and, and the strange thing is that as soon as my speech became more fluent, I started to try to be perfect again. And I, I started automatically to try and say everything perfectly. And, 
And, and, and then after a couple of years, it started to fall apart a bit and the stutter started to come back. And, and, and then I went through this period of probably 15 years, maybe, maybe more of not stuttering very much, yeah? uh, but being sort of in control of it but not properly in control of it and not properly understanding all of that stuff that I just told you. Um, and then it, it, it was just after I was about 40 years old that it, it, it came after reading an academic article about stuttering that, that it became crystal clear to me that that was where my problems seemed to lie, that I, I was not allowing myself to move forward or, or I was not realizing that I could move forward when I got stuck. I had this strong tendency to keep going back and trying again and going back and trying again. And, and, and so I, I was actually in my 40s. Um, I mean, it's almost embarrassing that it took so long to get to that point, but I did get there in the end. Um, of course, that's a long time ago now. So. Um, and then, yeah, there, there it was. Um, I realized that I could keep moving forward in my speech. And if I did get stuck, if, if I blocked or if I found myself repeating something, I just skip over that word or that sound and carry on with the rest of what I had to say and, and not worry whether people had understood me or not. That, that was also one of the big traps that I discovered. I, I always felt that unless I was certain that people had understood what I was trying to tell them, that, that I couldn't move forward, that I had to keep trying again and again. And, and then it, it occurred to me one day that perhaps it's better to just not worry about whether people are understanding what you're saying and just keep moving forward anyway. And if they understand, they understand. And if they don't, well, they can always tell you that they haven't. And then maybe you can find another way of saying it, or you can go back and say it again. So Fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you, Paul. So it took me 30 years. So your 20 years, you did pretty well. Well, I, but I was in my 40s, though. Uh, so, uh, me too. Yeah. I'm in my 40s. I should tell you one thing, though. It, it came as a surprise to me because, you know, by the time I reached 40, I, I had this feeling, and, and I got this from the books that I've read about stuttering, that, that if, if I haven't made a lot of progress by now, I'm probably not going to make a lot of progress. You know? And, and I, I'd sort of almost given up. I thought, you know, you know I'm just going to stutter like this forever. And, you, and yet it wasn't true. You know, even in your 40s, you can go from it being out of control to it being under control. And that's the thing that really matters. It, it's not a question of whether you stutter or not. That, that, that doesn't matter. The question is whether you've got it sufficiently under control or not. I think you'd probably agree with me there. 100%, because they say if you stutter past your teens, mm. you are stutter forever. That's what they say, correct? Well, even earlier, I mean, no, like 95% of recovery from stuttering happens by age eight. 
if you're still stuttering or if you start stuttering after that age, um, the probability is, is that you will always stutter. Um, that's a statistical probability, but, but always stutter can mean a lot of different things, yes? It, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're, you'll always have a severe stutter. It, it might become a very mild stutter and not be a problem. Um, but yeah, yeah, in terms of complete recovery, uh, the vast majority of complete recoveries happen before eight years of age. But they do also happen later on in it, um, at a later age. What is happening with you and I, I guess, is, is that we've found a way of controlling it, and so we've lost our fear of it. And that's a key thing. That, that's a real key thing as well, is once you've found a, a way that is sufficiently okay to control it, then naturally you stop being afraid of it because the fear is really the fear of of losing control of and, and 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 then of it stopping you from being able to say what you want to say and and so yeah the fear completely disappeared and since i was i don't know 41 42 years old i've in any situation. I mean, I still get nervous in speaking situations, but I'm not afraid of stuttering. I'm, I'm afraid of saying stupid things <laughs> and, and um, heaven knows what, or forgetting what I want to say, yeah, and, which I often do, um, but, but not stuttering. You know, there's still stuttering occurs, you know, you can hear me stuttering now, but it, I keep moving forward anyway. So let's define stuttering. What is stuttering for Paul Brockelist? Okay, uh, well, um, as I'm sure you know, there is no universally agreed definition of stuttering. Um, and the definition that researchers like is not necessarily the definition that, that people who stutter would choose. Um, I'm both the researcher and a person who stutters. So, so um, I sort of switch between def different definitions. But for me, stuttering is the experience of knowing exactly the words you want to say, being able to say them inside your head in your inner speech, perfectly okay, with no difficulty. And yet when you try to say those words out of your mouth, nothing happens, your mouth doesn't make the movements that it needs to make. That to me is stuttering. Um, now, just to give you a, a comparison, if you look at the researcher's definition, especially the definition used in early childhood stuttering, it, it tends to be if, if a child produces more than a certain number of disfluencies per 100 syllables, then they stutter. And if they, if the disfluency includes more than a certain number of repetitions or a certain number of prolongations, then they stutter. And there's a lot of arguments amongst researchers whether or not that's an appropriate um, definition. It, it's one that I would avoid. 
But I can understand why they use it, because when you're talking about two or three year old children, it's a bit hard to ask them, well, can you say the words okay inside your head? Because that's a bit of an abstract thing for a two year old to be able to explain. And of course, we can't look inside, I mean, we can't hear people's inner speech, so, so we don't know what, what's going on in there. Uh, we can just know in our own inner speech. And I know in my inner speech, my inner speech is beautifully fluent. Um, it always has been, even when I was a completely severe stutterer. Inside, there was no stutter. And I still do, I, I have word finding difficulties. And those make me disfluent as well. Uh, but that's not stuttering, that, that's something different. Um, although it might sound like stuttering because when I'm searching for a word, I, I might end up repeating the word before the word that I'm searching for. I might end up saying, um, uh, 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 um, my name, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah? Um, but that's, that, that's a form of disfluency, but not all disfluency is a stuttered disfluency. There, there are different sorts of disfluency. Um, and that's quite an important thing when you're speaking foreign languages, because obviously when you're learning a foreign language, you're going to be disfluent as well. But that doesn't mean that you're stuttering, it just means that you may have difficulty finding the right words or putting them in the right order or whatever. Absolutely. So my definition of stuttering is when I repeat sounds, repeat syllables, repeat words. Mm. That is my definition. And I don't repeat words. I sometimes repeat syllables or sounds, but like you said, I just keep speaking. I don't go back and cancel and re-say the word 10 million times, going to do contacts, going and seeing people in the street, saying some word that you had a problem with in one situation and beating yourself about with a broomstick around your head for the rest of the year, just because you had a stumble over a word. Now we have a prime minister, Prime Minister Boris Johnson. He doesn't stutter, no one has defined him as a stutterer, but let's send him to the speech therapist and count his number of disfluencies, repetitions and prolongations per hundred words, and let's get him classified as a stutterer because he stutters in my definition of a researcher. Do you agree? Yes or no? Yeah, I suspect if, if you were to give him a standardized test of stuttering that is used by researchers, he would quite likely be defined as a person who stutters. And yes, he doesn't stutter. Uh, well, not according to my definition of stuttering. He, he, he's just disfluent, yeah, and he, um, not quite sure what is going on there. Um, he has a little bit of difficulty probably formulating his sentences, maybe a little bit of word finding difficulty sometimes, but it's not stuttering, it's some, something different. Yeah, I mean, um, that's fascinating because Ed Balls, who came on my podcast, he was heckled by the Tory MPs and those people who went to Eton and, and in the Bullingdon Club. He also mm. went to, Oxford and he wasn't part of the Bullington Club like David Cameron and Boris Johnson, but he was heckled by the other MPs because he was blocking. He had an interest stutter. And people like you and me 
who block or stutter, like repeat sounds, word syllables, we get, take, we get taken the mickey out of. But I don't see um, people uh, pointing the finger at Boris Johnson to help him. I mean, it's perfectly fine to stutter and stumble, but what is not okay for Boris Johnson is to not actually talk about his stutter. Let, let's be honest. If everyone talked about their speech difficulties, mm -hmm. then people who stuttered would be more empowered to talk about their own speech difficulties because I was disempowered from a very young age. I was given techniques not to stutter. They didn't take you into speech therapy, Paul, to give you techniques to stutter on purpose or to stutter with power and confidence. They give you techniques such as the jog in the jubilee are said to make very good pets. This technique, slow speech technique, I learned when I was 18. Mm -hmm. What speech technique did you learn when you were 19, if you can remember? Me? Um, so what was I doing then? Um, I've been to speech therapists right throughout my childhood. And I, I sort of gave up with speech therapy around the age of 15. Uh, and then at the age of 15, I, I went to see a psychiatrist actually, who was a behavioral therapist. And he gave me an intensive course, um, which involved, um, what, what's it called? Uh, desensitization, systematic desensitization. Um, and, and I had to do lots and lots of exercises of repeating sounds over and over and over again, hundreds of thousands of times until. Was that by yourself or was that in public? Well, it started off by myself. And the idea was um, first just to practice with sounds and then with words and then practice with reading out of a book and then to practice reading in front of people and then conversation and then you know just with one person and with more people and that that worked uh for a few weeks <laughs> and then it stopped working and it all fell apart so why for a few weeks because i had a fantastic uh, therapy session for two weeks in a hospital where they locked me up with other male stutterers who stuttered. So in my belief system, I looked at them, they're being in their thirties, forties and fifties. I looked at them and thought, hey, I'm going to be struggling with stuttering until I'm 50, 60, 70, or till they wheel me into the coffin. Because if you're seeing role models of people who are still stuttering, still struggling mm. and trying not to stutter, Obviously, it's going to be internalized within your own belief system that you're going to start forever. You're going to struggle forever. Mm -hmm. So what I wanted to ask was, why is it that in your case, that after a few weeks, it went back downhill again? Well, it, it was a pattern that, that had happened to me and it continued to happen to me uh, on and off over quite a few years that my speech would fluctuate. And often when I would go through some sort of therapy, it, it would get much, much better. And then I start to think, well, I'm much, much better. And as, as soon as I started to think that 
I was much, much better. I'd start worrying that I might get worse again. Um, and and it, it was a bit like as soon as I started worrying, I'd start paying more attention and I'd be searching for little stutters here and there. I'm thinking, was that a stutter? Was, am I starting to stutter again? And, and then as I pay more and more attention to every little sound, of course, I start finding these little stutters. And then I think, ah, yeah, there it is. I'm starting again. It's coming back. And then I start panicking. And, and then, of course, it would all fall apart and I'd be back to square one. And I've seen this in myself. And I've seen this in other people who started too. That um, it, it's strange, but almost any form of therapy can make you fluent for a temporary time um, and it, it seems to boil down a bit to faith as much as anything you know you you get into something new you're impressed by it it seems to make sense you uh, maybe the therapist um, inspires you with confidence you know tells you that you're going to be cured and this and that and 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 uh, and so you stop worrying for a while and, and you feel that you are going to be cured. And then when you stop worrying, then you stop paying so much attention to what you sound like. And lo and behold, it gets better. But, but then when it, once you become fluent, <laughs> um, it's like you become attached to that and you become afraid that you might fall back down again and it falls apart. Um, it's it's a common pattern in therapy um, and a part of the problem there well I think there's a few problems there I think the first problem is that um, people can improve temporarily uh, because in the early stages, a therapy can distract their attention away from um, the experience of stuttering. Um, and, and so they're not paying attention to their fear of stuttering. They're, they're not afraid of it, so, so they stutter less. But most therapies don't teach you to get more control over your attention. Um, and so actually the underlying issue that your attention is out of control um, has not been solved. And, and, and so soon, soon or later your attention gets dragged back to the things that make you panic and then you start panicking again. That's one thing. Um, and there was something else I was gonna say, now I can't remember. My mind's gone blank on what the other thing was, but. Ask me another question. Maybe it'll come back to me later on. But, uh... For sure. Um, earlier, you mentioned that when you were paying attention to something which wasn't conducive to fluent speech, you started to stutter more. And then when you were, pay when you were paying attention to something else that was conducive to fluent speech, you were fluent. Could you share yeah. more on that? Yeah. Okay, so this again boils down to perfectionism and, and trying to be perfect, I think. And, and so what I found in general is that if I pay attention to my speech errors, to my mistakes, or, or to mistakes that I think I might make, so uh, 
mistakes that I anticipate making. When I do that, I tend to stutter at the moment I think I'm going to make a mistake. As soon as I think the word's not going to come out exactly as I want it to come out, I stutter. Um, whereas if I don't pay attention to getting it all completely right, uh, to getting a word exactly right, or, or also if I don't pay attention to eliciting exactly the response I want from the person who's listening to me, um, then I also, I can, I can keep going, I'm, I'm okay. But as soon as I get fixated on the person's got to respond positively to me, or I've got to say the word perfectly, or something like that, as, as soon as I start focusing on those aspects of speech or conversation, I get stuck again. Now, one of the things that I've found to really helped me uh, to stop myself from fixating my attention on pronouncing things perfectly and eliciting positive responses from people was to focus my attention on the forward flow of, of what I'm trying to say. Just instead of worrying about the words that I'm currently saying, I, I'm, I'm constantly looking ahead uh, at the next words that are going to come out. And I, I just let my mouth do the work and, and not paying attention. And I don't pay attention to my mouth. And my, I, I'll give you an analogy. You know when you read in a book, where your eyes are looking at the text is always a word or two in front of where you're actually speaking. Do you know what I mean? You, um, so we sort of read ahead of what, what we're speaking. This is when we're, when we're reading out loud, that is. Well, I try to do the same sort of thing when I'm speaking out loud. You know, when I, not reading, but just in conversational settings. Just keep moving forward, keep moving forward and, and not worrying about what's actually coming out. Uh, and after a while, one finds that the less you worry about it, the less mistakes it contains. It, it's, it's sort of paradoxical, but the more perfect you try to be, the more mistakes just seem to come. Um, and, and the more stutters come too. Whereas if you just keep moving forward, somehow everything slots into place and it comes out okay. Not all the time, you know, but as often as not. Can you think yourself into stuttering? Oh yeah, sure. I mean, I, I, exactly. I think that's very much what we do. Uh, um, it, it becomes a sort of pattern of thinking, really. Um, it, it has a lot to do with ant anticipation. We anticipate that we're going to get stuck, or we anticipate that something's not going to come out of our mouth as we want it to come out, or, or we anticipate that our listener's not going to understand us, or we anticipate that they're not going to respond positively to us. It, these anticipations, they're thoughts, yeah? They're, they're thought, and they're probably based on past experiences that were unpleasant. You know, and I'm sure this is where a lot of the stuttering comes from, is, is where we've been traumatized in a way from past experiences of 
people not responding positively to us, people not understanding us, uh, words not coming out of our mouth the way we want, and, and, and all, all of that. We've all got so many bad memories from the past, and, and that, that brings on all of these anticipations. Um, and then I've got a saying that I keep, this is one of my um, sayings that I have to myself. Uh, it's a part of the meditation. Past patterns don't always repeat. You have to think of what that means. You know, just because last time I was in this situation, I got stuck, doesn't mean that I'll get stuck this time. Past patterns do often repeat, but not always. And, and really important, I think, for people wanting to change and, 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 and to gain more control over their stuttering is, is to get out of this mindset of, well, I can't speak fluently in this situation because last time I was in this situation, I got stuck. You never know. You, you never know until you try. And, and yeah, maybe it's true. Maybe you'll get stuck again. But until you try, um, you can't know. And, and, and the past patterns don't always repeat. Sometimes, yeah, usually they repeat, but, but not always. And when they don't repeat, that is a key moment of learning. That, that's, it's those moments when we expect to stutter and yet the stutter doesn't happen. Uh, that's, that's, they're really useful experiences to us uh, because that can change our, our thoughts and our expectations in a positive way. Fantastic. So can you share from the ages of 21 till 40s, what did you do, what were you doing in Germany and what positive or negative experiences of stuttering you experienced along the way that help you to grow as a person to not effectively stutter and to grow out of stuttering at, of, at the age of 40 when they say it's impossible. Right, okay. Um, okay, so after I left medical school, I, I basically got manual jobs. Um, in Germany, my first job, I was a painter. And I worked in a brick factory. Uh, my job was loading the, br the bricks that had just come out of the ovens, loading them onto lorries. And then I got a job as a driver, um, and this this driving job was really interesting. I, I I was driving all over North Germany, and and I had to deliver welding electrodes to different companies. Uh, I'd already been in Germany probably a year or more, and I could speak a fair bit of German by then. Uh, and this job required me to. Um, turn up in my lorry at a company, had to find the right person to talk to, and I had to tell them, you know, that I've got these electrodes for you, and how are we going to take them off the lorry and that. Um, so throughout the day, I, I'd turn up at about 10 or so different companies, and I'd have, I'd have to talk a bit. And what I used to do, uh, I, de I decided, you know, I've got to do this job five, five days a week, 40 hours a week or something like this. Why not turn it into a sort of meditation ex exercise? So that's exactly what I did. I, 
while I was driving, I was doing mindful driving, driving meditation. And then when I arrived at a company, um, having just been doing that meditation, I, I was somehow in a good mindset to be able to talk for a little while. And, and what I started finding very quickly as, as I had this job, that um, I could arrive at a company and, and I could say exactly the things I had to say. Uh, and also because I always arrived with a piece of paper with the uh, details of what I was delivering, if there was a problem, if I found myself getting stuck, I'd just sort of point to the words on the piece of paper and, and, and that would get me through it so I could keep moving forward. And, and the interesting thing was because I had the paper with me and because it was written on the paper, I knew in my mind that if I could, if I got stuck, I could show that. So it didn't matter if I got stuck because I had a sort of safety net, so to speak. So because it didn't matter, because I had the papers, I, I wasn't worried about getting stuck. So I didn't worry. So, so in fact, I didn't get stuck. So it, it meant that I could say what I wanted to say. And then over the months, experiencing this experience day after day after day, um, this, this stuff had disappeared. Um, and, and it stayed away for, well, it stayed away as long as I had that job, actually. Uh, and, and then, I stopped that job. I got bored of it, basically. Uh, and by this time, I'd found a partner. We were living together. We decided to go off and live in Greece. Um, and at that time, I, I didn't stutter anymore. The stuck had gone, as far as I was aware. Uh, and we packed up our things and drove off and, and found a place in Greece to live. And we'd been there a few months, I think it was, and I was trying to learn Greek. Uh, and, and we were in a restaurant, and I was trying to order some food in this restaurant. Um, and my, my Greek wasn't very good, so I, I tried to say this thing, I can't remember what it was, some dish. And the waiter didn't understand, uh, um, um, understand me. And, and he said, what? And, and I tried to say it, I tried to pronounce it better because I, obviously my pronunciation wasn't good enough. So I, and he still didn't understand me. So I tried again and I was trying harder this time. And I noticed myself blocking just a little bit. This was after more than 18 months of being completely fluent. And, 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 and then I, that sort of shook my confidence and I started, I, I remember that. And then next time I was in a similar speaking situation, I was thinking, well, I hope this doesn't happen again. And of, of course, because my accent was not very good, people were not understanding me well quite often. So, so it actually did happen again. <laughs> um, and the stutter started coming back like that. Um, and that experience was actually very useful to me. It, it, it sort of unnerved me a bit, but it, it made me realize that uh, it, I, I can't, it's not helpful for me to try to pronounce things perfectly. Um, that if people are not understanding me, 
it, it's better for me to find a different way around that. Um, if it's a foreign language, maybe I can show them what's been written down or whatever, or maybe I can find a different word or I can point to something. I mean, you know, a lot of people would say, well, you shouldn't do that because this is avoidance techniques, but, but it's not really avoidance because I've tried to say the word, you know, I really tried to say the word. It's, it's not that I'm anticipating that I can't say it and so I don't try at all. I do try. Um, and only if for some reason the person won't you know, can't understand me or I can't pronounce it well enough, or then I'll find some other way around it. I started realizing that we need to be pragmatic about this. It, it's no good being too much of an idealist and, and thinking that, well, I, I must keep trying to say every word perfectly and I must keep at it till I do. If a word isn't coming out or if I'm blocking in it and I can't say it. If I can't say it, I can't say it. There's no point beating myself up about that. I, you know, maybe I can say it tomorrow or maybe I can say it in five minutes time, but at this moment of time, if, if it's not coming out, better to just forget it and move on to the next. Um, and, and so you had lots of experiences of learning to be pragmatic like that and not to be such an idealist. And then um, I could go on. I, I'm sort of conscious of the time. I <laughs> no, please do, uh, because I'm sure the listeners will be fascinated to hear your story about how you got out of stuttering at the age of 40, because a lot of people who are in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s are still struggling. So yeah. please yeah, carry yeah. on. So, so uh, OK, so that was, those were useful experiences. Um, a big, big breakthrough came for me. I think, like I said, I was 41 or 42, and I, I was reading an academic article, um, and it was a new theory. Uh, it was a psycholinguistic theory of stuttering that had just been formulated by a couple of guys in Holland. Uh, and they had come up with this idea that, um, People stutter when they're trying to repair planning errors in what they're planning that they're going to say. So to put this into context, let me try and explain. Um, when we speak, obviously the only thing that our listener experiences is the words that come out of our mouth out of our mouth but actually before those words come out of our mouth we we have to plan what we're going to say and lots of this happens at an unconscious level it happens in our brains when we're not consciously aware of it but uh, we start off with an idea that we want to express then our brains find appropriate words uh, to express that idea and then the brain links these words together in, in an appropriate sequence and then the brain organizes the muscle movements that our mouth has to make in order to make those words and, and then once it's done all of that um, it allows the program as it's called it's called a motor program to be executed it, it allows us to move our mouths in the way that uh, enables those words to come out. Now, because this speech planning is a complicated thing, 
all of us make planning errors. So when we're planning to say things, we often make errors. I mean, we're not conscious of it. It's, it's, it's all unconscious, but those errors are in there. And so these guys uh, came up with that, this idea that um, when we plan our speech, there's some mechanism inside our heads that looks at the plan. And if there's an error in that plan, the plan gets cancelled and it has to be created all over again. Uh, and usually the second time round, there's no errors and so we can say it. Now, what these guys thought is that maybe with people who stutter, their speech planning is a bit more error prone than people who don't stutter. Therefore, when a person who stutters tries to plan what he's going to say, there's a higher likelihood that there's going to be some errors in, in there. And that makes this mechanism, um, which stops the errors from coming out, it, it makes that mechanism sort of hyperactive. And, and so it, that mechanism then blocks us from saying what we want to say. Now, that probably all sounds very technical, but, but, but what that meant to me was that, well, what these guys are actually telling me is that actually underlying my stutter, there is some sort of neurological something or other that is making me a little bit more error prone than people who don't stutter. It's not necessarily making me stutter, but it, it means that even when I'm not stuttering, my speech is maybe a little bit clumsier, maybe the words don't quite come out quite so perfectly as other people's words might. Maybe I have a tendency to formulate my sentences in wrong ways, um, and that sort of thing. And when I thought about this, I thought, well, yeah, that's true. That, that's exactly what my speech is like when I'm not stuttering. I'm, I, it, it's a bit more error prone than most people's speech. And it, it was then I decided, well, okay, so if that's how I am, um, and I'm probably not going to be able to do any, any, anything about that because it probably is an underlying neurological weakness, I just have to accept my errors. And, and instead of trying to speak perfectly, I just accept that, well, I'm a bit clumsy. I make more errors than other people, uh, but that's okay. And that's fine. And that was a really useful insight um, that if I can ac accept the fact that my speech is just a little bit, not quite as perfect as a lot of other people's, then simply accepting that fact is going to make me less likely to stutter every time I expect that I'm going to make an error. And then there was one final thing that came after that, and, and this is uh, very recently I, I became aware of this. When I was studying psycholinguistics, uh, I, was, I was interested in the difference between how computers work and how the human brain works. And one thing that has been of real interest to computer scientists is the fact that the human brain has a capacity to make mistakes. It makes lots of errors. 
Whereas com computers don't make mistakes. Computers, if you put a program in it, the computer will always execute that program perfectly. It'll always come up with the same results. Human beings, you try and do the same thing a hundred times and, and you won't get the same results come out a hundred times you know, when, when you try to say something, for example. What I didn't re realize was that actually our error proneness is the foundation of our ability to be creative in our lives. The more errors we make, the more creative we are. And people who are naturally highly creative are naturally highly error prone because the errors are the creativity. I mean, you know, we might call it creativity or we might call it mistakes, but it's, it's ultimately the same thing. They're sort of happy mistakes that have a good outcome. But if we never made mistakes, we would never be creative. So stutterers as a group are creative in their speech. And they're probably creative in their lives generally, maybe somewhat more so than most other people. And maybe the price we pay for that is we become disfluent and some of the words don't quite come out exactly as we expect. But that could be a blessing. And it's not wrong. It, it's perfect. It's, it's perfect like that. And, and if we can learn to see it in that way, then we, that means that we'll evaluate our performance far more positively. And, and when we evaluate our performance more positively, the tendency to stutter just falls right back down. And so, yeah, that, that was, um, as you mentioned earlier on, when we first I've been writing this book, and, and that, that was the central message of, of that book, The Perfect Stutter. Could you share a bit about your book and what inspired you to write a story of your stutter, Imperfect? Okay. Um, so as I was explaining, um, really the last understanding that I arrived at that really helped me was this understanding that our stuttering and our errors, our speech errors are, are the basis of our creativity, that, that uh, uh, the price they pay for that creativity is, is that they tend to make mistakes maybe particularly in their speech. And when I started to understand it in this way, it, 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 it was a message that I wanted to try and get across to other people. And, and it seemed to me that a good way to do that would be to write a book and to write the book of my own story of stuttering and, and the story of how I eventually arrived at that un understanding. And so there we are. So I, I've been trying to write it for years uh, and got there gradually. Um, and, and then a few weeks ago, it was finally completed. Uh, so yes, my hope is, is that pe people who read the story will 
will be able to identify some similar processes going on inside their own lives and and uh, maybe they'll be able to get something from that book that may be of use to them. Fantastic. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you're a researcher as well as, as a stutterer. So what do you research? Um, well, speech errors. Um, so I did my first, well, when I returned back to university, after my stutter became much less severe and I finally had it sufficiently under control, I returned back to university. I, I went back and uh, I, I couldn't do medicine again. That was out of the question, but I, it was possible to do a degree in speech therapy. So I, I did a, deg a degree in speech therapy, um, but I never actually practiced as a speech therapist. Um, I, I went straight on uh, into further education. And then I did a master's degree at Edinburgh in psycholinguistics. Um, and the reason I did that was because the people in the department up in Edinburgh um, that, that were running this psycholinguistics degree um, were well acquainted with the theory, uh, it's called the covert repair hyp hypothesis, which, which was this theory that, it, that these two Dutch guys had come up with, um, which was that people who stutter, their speech is more error prone, that, that quite apart from their stuttering, they tend to make errors. And I was interested, I, I wanted to do some research myself to find out if this was actually true. And, and so when I got to Edinburgh, that's experiments uh, to compare the speech of people who stutter with people who don't stutter and to see if it was really true. Uh, when we're not stuttering, do we make more speech errors? And one of the ways that I did this um, was to get stutterers and non-stutterers to recite tongue twisters over and over again, uh, because obviously tongue twisters make us make errors. And, and, and what I found was that when reciting tongue twisters, at least, the people who stuttered make approximately twice as many speech errors as the people who don't stutter. And then I also learned about other research that had been carried on, uh, that, that, that had been done, looking at other aspects of stutterous speech. And, and it seems that uh, there are there is evidence from right across the board that stutterous speech is is slightly more error prone than that of people who don't stutter. Um, <clears throat> then I was also looking at perfectionism in people who stutter to find out if they're more perfectionistic than people who don't stutter. Um, and the result of that research was quite interesting. It turns out that they're not more perfectionistic, but they are more afraid of making errors, which sort of makes sense because if they actually do make more errors, then that would explain why they're more afraid of making errors maybe. Um, and so on, yeah, so, so that's the, the type of research that I got involved with. It, it, it was 
looking for evidence uh, to see, well, you know, what are the differences? What really are the differences in our capacity uh, compared to that of people who don't stutter? Fantastic. So to end with, I want to ask a question about genetics and how that links to stuttering, because obviously you don't stutter and I don't stutter. I sometimes stumble, but we know that Prime Minister Boris Johnson stumbles a lot more than me and you put together. So for those people who are in a mindset of, okay, there is some genetic predisposition to stuttering, which I have to agree because I have a four-year-old, nine-month son, and he is stumbling. He repeats sounds, words, and syllables. And I myself, apparently at that age, started to speak and I repeated sounds, words, and syllables. So obviously there's a genetic predisposition to stuttering. What do you say to those people who are struggling with stuttering? What advice could you give to those people who are struggling and who've been struggling for more than 20, 30, 40, 50 years, trying to have perfect fluent speech? Well, the research shows that um, <clears throat> a genetic predisposition to stuttering can be inherited. Um, and the, that predisposition is probably present in about 70% of people who stutter. Um, and the way they've worked out that statistic is they've compared stuttering in identical twins with stuttering in non-identical twins. Um, importantly, identical twins have exactly the same genes. And what you find is that if you have a couple of identical twins, if one of them stutters, there's a 70% probability that the, that, that the other one will stutter also. But, but that's interesting. It's interesting because it's only 70%, it's not 100%. So that means that you can get two identical twins with identical genes. One of them does stutter and the other doesn't stutter. So what's that telling us? That's telling us that we inherit a predisposition to stuttering. But whether or not that predisposition then actually turns into stuttering depends upon the environment in which we live and the things that happen to us in our lives. Um, so even if you have a strong genetic predisposition to stuttering, it does not automatically imply that you're going to stutter. And even if you do stutter, it does not automatically imply that you will always stutter. Um, so at least 80% of Hang on, what am I saying? Uh, yeah, 80% of people who stutter when they're a, ch a child recover from it spontaneously. Um, they'll recover from it whether or not they have treatment. So, so, so that's four out of every five recover completely. And then out of the one that, the one that doesn't recover, the probability is that as they go on, as, as they get older, they'll learn to control it, like 
you and I have, and, and to all intents and purposes, it will completely stop to be, it'll stop being a problem. Of course, not everybody is so lucky, and there are a small number of people who continue to start, start to write throughout their lives. But as you and I have found out, um, stuttering can become a lot less, even at quite an advanced age. Um, with us, it was, you said you were in your 30s or 40s, I was in my 40s. And, and so uh, it, it can improve at an older age than that too. Uh, so, so there's always the possibility. Um, it, it's never too late. Um, and the fact that you have a genetic predisposition is not the end of the world, um, not, not in any way. Fantastic. Thanks so much. So that's the title of our podcast. It's never too late. And I wish to thank you for your time. It's been fantastic speaking with you, Paul, and hearing about your adventures through Europe. And now you're living in France. I hope to meet you at some point in the future. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. And it's been a real pleasure to talk with you. And uh, yeah, I too, I hope we bump into each other at some point somewhere in the future. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you found it really helpful. You may also like the backlist episodes and show notes at touchingmind.com forward slash podcast. You can also get the seven steps to expressing yourself free guide at touchingmind.com forward slash free guide. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. You can connect with me on all social media platforms. I'm looking for touching mind. Thank you again and look forward to connecting with you.